All right, welcome back everyone here. It's Pastor Lars Hammer from Lord of Grace. I uh, want to welcome you back on this nice uh, chilly morning here in Arizona. I'm going to keep going today with uh, the series on being an unfundamentalist Christian that I'm naming. I'll give my obligatory disclaimer that uh, I did not invent that name. Uh, I'm not the first one to have it. Uh, I just like it. So I'm, I'm going ahead and using that. I've been going through some of the different things that we often kind of attribute to Jesus, maybe things we think about that maybe Jesus said or supported or believed in. And so I'm doing a little kind of sub-series on this called Things Jesus Didn't Say. Uh, and so I'm just kind of picking some of these things at random. I'm going to do one this week and then one more next week. So next Wednesday will be Ash Wednesday. I'll do live stream after that. Uh, after that, so two weeks from now, I'll start a Lent series. Uh, looking at the cross and different understands of meanings of Jesus's death and what the cross means for us. But I'll get into that in a couple weeks. Today uh, we're going to look at a phrase uh, that I don't know if it, I don't know if literally anybody believed, but it says, "I need more members." Uh, I don't know if Jesus said that. I think pretty much every pastor out there has said that. And so I'm going to delve a little bit into sort of church growth things. Uh, group dynamics, insider, outsider, uh, high and low expectations, how Jesus did that. So we'll look at three different passages uh, in the Gospels and how Jesus approached that topic a little bit himself. What can we learn about that? Well, again, just the, I always like to give background, as you know. Um, the history of Christianity has gone through kind of an evolution in how it understood inclusion or membership in the community. Again, membership isn't really a term that existed originally, uh, but the very first Christians, of course, were those who followed the disciples and they tended to meet underground. And joining uh, was initially something that was a very difficult process. Well, I shouldn't say that. In Acts, under Peter, people get baptized right away. It was quick, it was easy. Then came the early church that was largely underground. There, if you wanted to join and be a part of the church, it was a long process and there was a long system of education, they called it catechesis, and you had to go through all this instruction, and only after the period of instruction would you be baptized. So the bar was pretty high. It was pretty hard to get in. It's kind of hard for us to imagine in churches these days setting a bar that high to join. Um, I do know that, for example, the Roman Catholic Church has a process that's somewhat similar to it, uh, Rite of Catholic Initiation for Adults, RCIA, and it's several months long, and it's a fairly involved process to become a Catholic. Uh, most Protestant churches, our process is nowhere like that, but in the history of it, so then you had the underground church with this very structured, long instruction system, you got baptized. Then as the Christian church became official with Emperor Constantine in 325, at that point, belonging to the church and belonging to the state kind of started to become one and the same. And it wasn't an overnight thing, but with the emperor Christian, with the empire officially Christian, being a Christian was no longer, it was no longer something that, that you were persecuted for. It wasn't something you had to hide underground anymore. You could go above ground and worship. And so then essentially it became it became easier to join, and more people did. 
And so numerically, uh, the church grew to the point where by the time you get into the early, even the middle, middle ages, pretty much everyone in the West was, you were Christian, and that was just how you were born, and that was a part of your nationality, your identity. And so that kind of tended to be how membership in the church was understood. It was membership in a country. And it still was kind of the case, I would say, maybe up into the 90s in a lot of Western Europe where they had state churches. So that if you were, for example, if you were Swedish, you were automatically a member of the State Church of Sweden. It wasn't called the Lutheran Church of Sweden. It was just called the Swedish Church. And you were automatically a member if one of your parents was a member. Now, you could opt out. When I was there in the 80s, it was, it was more work to opt out. There were forms you had to fill out. Uh, and um, you could opt out. You weren't forced to be in. But there was no process for joining, you, you, really, because that wasn't something they really uh, dealt with. Everyone just kind of was. And whether you believed or didn't believe, whether you attended or didn't attend, whether you participated in anything or not, the only real criteria for membership was that you continued to pay your tax, the 2% of your income that would then go to the Swedish church. That was what defined membership. And so it was quite a culture shock for me as a kid when we were over there to find out that uh, church council elections were political elections and people would come in even on Sunday morning. I'd be sitting in the pews and they'd walk in through the back and then I'd watch them walk around the side of the sanctuary to get over to the fellowship hall to cast their ballots and they would vote by party. So the social, you would vote for your social democrat uh, representative on the church board and your moderate representative and your environmental party representative and your central and the communist party of Sweden would run candidates for church uh, for church councils, and our church council had a communist. Uh, and he was a blatant atheist, and his goal was to destroy religion. And he thought sitting on the church council would be a good way to do that. Um, and so this just absolutely boggles you know, your mind as an American, where we have this kind of idea of separation. Um, but what it has meant over the centuries is that being a part of Jesus's community in the West in particular, and I think you'd see it, there's some parallels to this in the East. I think Byzantium operated fairly similarly. Um, but being a Swede meant you were a Lutheran, being Greek meant you were Orthodox, being French meant you were Catholic. These things were just synonymous with na nationality. Personal individual choice, personal individual decisions to follow or not follow were largely irrelevant. And, um, you know, the sermons would talk about morality. This is what you should do. Now that we all are Christians, this is what we should do. But since it, you didn't really opt in, that was kind of how it got understood. Well, you can imagine that over the years, and the evidence has borne this out, that uh, religious participation, religious belief in Scandinavia, Western Europe, has just plummeted way down. So they'll have these state churches with huge membership roles and tiny, tiny, tiny numbers of people actually attending on a Sunday. Uh, I remember kids in my class in Sweden would just look at me like, why do you go? Why go? They just absolutely couldn't understand why you would go to church. I'm going to heaven anyways, so why go on Sunday? What do you get out of it Sunday? I'm already going to heaven. 
It just, it made absolutely no sense to them. Religious participation meant nothing. That's kind of what state church does when it all becomes one. Well, so a lot of these Europeans then came to America. Clearly the state and the church were not exactly the same thing. But often culturally, that force could still continue. You were Swedish, so you were a Swedish Lutheran. And again, people could opt out plenty well, plenty of Swedes did, uh, but there still was a sort of a cultural impetus. And so, you know, we're Swedes, we go to the local Lutheran church, um, we inherited this faith from our parents, and uh, that was kind of how it was understood. And so a lot of our church constitutions in the Lutheran church to this day still bear some of the remnants of the old state church kind of thinking, uh, where, you know, the requirements for membership are not super high. The difficulty in removing people from membership is high because, again, if this is a right, an inheritance, you don't remove that lightly. You know, just because Bill's being a bit of a curmudgeon, you know, doesn't mean you just get rid of Bill. You know, we have to, and so we've tended to adopt that kind of system. I remember in Minnesota, our home churches, you know, I'd, I would go to the high school and I'd run into people all the time. And they would, uh, they would say, oh yeah, your dad's the pastor over at that church. I said, yeah, yeah. And the guy would go, that's my church. And I would say, I've never seen you there, ever. And he goes, but that's my church. I'm like, if it's your church, you should attend? Why would I do that? I'm like, oh gosh, here I am back in Sweden again, right? Um, that's changed, of course, in the 30 years since then. Uh, if you go back, the only people going to the church now are people who want to go. That cultural pressure to somehow keep a shoestring affiliation, uh, it's disappeared, right? Um, so now the people who go want to go. The people who are there want to be there. It's a way smaller group, but you're not dealing with all sort of the people on the outside. But this is, a lot of this is kind of your basic group dynamics issues, right? You know, when you make a group that has high entrance requirements, high requirements for, for, for staying in, easy requirements to remove, you know, you tend to get a smaller group that's a lot more dedicated. If you loosen those requirements, uh, you can often get a bigger group but you often find they're not quite as dedicated. But what is it that, where, where did Jesus stand in all of this? That's kind of where I come back to this because we all have to admit that, that where we are in the United States now is the la last cultural influences pushing people into church are gone, right? If people are gonna go, they're gonna go because they wanna go. Um, and so uh, we, have to, we have to kind of adapt to a situation that in many ways is a little bit closer to where the early church was than you know where it was in Europe in the late Middle Ages or you know in the 1800s even. Um, so if we're in an environment where people don't automatically participate, what do we have to do? We have to somehow start thinking more like a little bit more like that early church did. But what was Jesus's take on it? Now this is what's kind of interesting when you look at Jesus is. Um, Jesus had a group of disciples, and he had people who wanted to follow him, but he didn't always want them to follow. They, they would want to join, he would often tell them away. Let's look at some passages on this. I got three different passages as examples of sort of how Jesus understood this dynamic of being in and out, uh, 
And so, all right. Uh, now keep in mind, keep in mind the context here is Judaism for Jesus and his people at that time was very much, it was an ethnic, if you were ethnically Jewish, you were religiously Jewish, you were nationally Jewish. Those were all kind of combined, right? But if you were going to be Jesus's disciple, follow his particular version of Judaism, that was something that was not automatic, right? And Jesus, as the rabbi, got to decide who did and who didn't follow him in his particular school of Judaism. So let's look at Matthew 19. Uh, then someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Which ones? <laughs> what, you don't want to do all ten of them? You're trying to see if me... Or, this, is, this is what the guy's doing. He's hoping that he's not going to... He's trying to figure out sort of what's the lowest bar, right? Well, well what's, what's the minimum that I have to get over? Which ones? Oh, I don't know. Odd-numbered ones. What do you think he's going to say? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Also, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, love your neighbor as yourself isn't in the Ten Commandments. It is in the it is in the Old Testament. It is in the law. So, the young man said to him, "I've kept all these. What do I still lack?" Jesus said to him, "If you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give all the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven." Then come follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. So there we go. Often this passage gets looked at from the perspective of wealth. What does it say about wealth? I want to look at this one from the perspective of discipleship and membership and participation, right? So a guy's coming to Jesus, he wants eternal life. He wants to follow him, and Jesus, you know, doesn't immediately say, oh, well, um, you know, do the best you can. Do the best you can with the law. Try, try to give a little extra, and then I'd love to have you join us. He, 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 he immediately sets this almost unreachable bar, right? If you, want, if you want to earn your way into heaven, sell everything and give it away. Then come follow me. Now, some of this, of course, is Jesus saying that you're misunderstanding how eternal life works. It's a gift from God. It's not something you earn. But if you do want to try to earn it, okay, here's the bar. Sell everything and then come follow me. Well, of course, he's not going to do that, right? You know, we all, like to, we all like the idea of earning salvation or thinking that somehow, you know, what I have is a reward for my hard work and responsibility. But Jesus says, you know, at the end of the day, none of that's going to, if that's your bar, it has to be absolute. If you're going to earn it, it has to be absolute, total sacrifice. And he knows the guy wasn't going to do that. So he went away. He didn't want to give up his possessions. But isn't it interesting, you know, that again, this, who knows? Maybe this guy could have been a good disciple if Jesus just would have lowered that bar a little bit. Give up some of your possessions. Now, granted, you know, we don't do that in our church. I don't tell people they have to sell everything. I'm not Jesus. I'm not a wandering rabbi. 
right? I do also wonder to what extent Jesus didn't want people with a lot of possessions in his particular group of disciples because they'd still have their minds back home on managing their property and their possessions that they couldn't really just go where they needed to go and do what they needed to do if they had these commitments back home. So some of that I think is maybe just practical to Jesus himself. But Jesus doesn't try to keep him. He doesn't try to please him. He doesn't see, he doesn't ask him to come back. He doesn't beg him, oh my gosh, please don't go, don't go. You know, and the disciples don't look at him and go, oh, pastor, my gosh, you were so curt to him. He could have been a good member. You know, they don't say that. Jesus just tells them the truth. This is, this, you want an answer to your question? I'll give you an answer. He doesn't water it down, but he's not harsh. He just says, this is okay. That's, that's what you want. This is what it is. So, high bar. All right, let's go to another one. Luke 14. Uh, Luke 14 here. Now, large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost, see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. I thought they would have had a better line, but it's just, na 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 you didn't plan ahead. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then, while the other still far away, sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can be my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Here we are again. Now again, how much of this is Jesus in his particular circumstance getting his particular group of disciples. I think that's a lot of it. Um, but it's interesting what he says there in verse uh, 26, because that goes against so much of what we've kind of been raised to think about Christianity as the, uh, as the religious moral bul uh, bulwark, the religious moral support of, uh, of the, the nuclear family. Um, and then Jesus' answer is, well, Unless you hate your family and are willing to separate from them, uh, you can't follow me. You know, and that's interesting that Jesus is, is openly saying he's going to drive a wedge that, that, uh, and that he's okay with that. Again, if you have big family ties, are you able to really follow Jesus or will your allegiances always be somewhere else, right? Especially when you live in a culture like that where big extended family is everything, everything, everything. Um, you know, your family would expect you to use whatever influence you had with the rabbi to help them, just as you would expect them to use whatever they could to help you. That was how the, that's how that structure works, right? And Jesus is trying to create a new community of disciples that isn't tied down to these existing uh, networks, so he says, you've you got to be willing to hate mother and father. We see this as really harsh, but you know, I've run into people from other countries that are not majority Christian 
who have converted to Christianity, and they will tell you that the, that the first thing that happens is they lose their family. And, if they, and the family will hate them. And if they, can't, if they can't make that break, they'll not be able to make it as Christians. And so what they often have to do is they have to leave their family behind to follow Jesus and then turn to the church, and the church becomes their family. Um, I remember in D.C. Uh, studying this. I, I spent some time in Washington, D.C., and I took classes at various Catholic schools. And I remember uh, some of these guys, they were studying to be priests in the room, and they were talking about one of these, their fellow priest students, I don't remember what order, um, who was from one of these countries and was in that kind of situation. Uh, when he converted, in his case, to Catholicism, uh, his whole family disowned him. So every time there was Thanksgiving break or Christmas break, he was always looking for someone to take him home because he didn't have a family. Um, he had to make that break to follow Jesus. So Jesus became, in many ways, the family divider, not the family uniter. Uh, again, Jesus is not dealing with the you know, sort of modern questions of you know, what is the right family arrangement for raising kids? That's not what he's getting into here. His issue here is, are you, willing to f are, are you willing to follow me to the point where you're willing to hate your parents? Um, if not, if you're not willing to make that break, you're not ready to follow me. And then he takes it up one notch in verse 27. Whoever doesn't carry their cross. So in other words, it's not just enough that you've got to break with your family. You've got to be prepared to die. Are you ready to die? I mean, that's a high bar. I've, one of the best examples I can think of, the analogies I use, and it's an imperfect analogy, but uh, it makes a little bit more sense. Jesus is a little bit kind of like a Marine recruiter. Follow me here. When the Marines go to advertise, they don't say, we promise it isn't really that bad. Hey, why don't you come to training? It isn't really that rough. We'll get you through it. What do they do? They say the few, the bold, the marines, the few, the proud, the few, the brave, the few, the proud, right? They basically say it's going to be super, super hard and most of the rest of those people can't make it. Are you ready to rise to the challenge? They don't advertise it as being easy or light. They advertise it as being hard. And that advertising works. It draws people who are ready to rise to the challenge, right? And there's plenty who don't do it, right? Most Americans will not rise to the challenge of being a Marine. And there will be people who will sign up and not be able to follow through on it. They'll find they can't rise to the challenge. They want to, maybe they can't. But that's how they advertise. They don't advertise that this is going to be easy. They don't, they, they, they don't try to soften it or repackage it. They own it. They own it. This is what it means to be a Marine. You're going to work your butt off, and then we're going to deploy you, and you'll work your butt off some more. Uh, this is much more how I see Jesus doing his method of, his brand of discipleship, is that he's not interested in trying to have the most disciples and the biggest collection of disciples and having the most money from the biggest collection of disciples. I mean, if that's what he wanted, he would have told the rich guy, uh, to follow him, because that would have been a consistent source of revenue. Jesus doesn't do that. Um, instead, what Jesus does is he raises the bar and says, are you ready to come with me and 
we will build this kingdom of, we will be a part of building the kingdom of God, but you'll probably lose your family and die. Are you ready for the challenge? You know, and that's when he gives this analogy of, you know, before you consider joining, think about, you know, the guy who builds the tower. Think about what it's going to cost you if you do it before you get in. Which makes me think that there were people who followed Jesus and then kind of partway through said, yeah, I'm not ready for this. And so Jesus made a point of being more clear up front that this is what following me is going to mean. All right. Let's keep going. John 6. This is, this is one I've always turned to. Uh, I've loved about Jesus. This is a very different one from Matthew that's so much about the law. This one... Uh, is more, well, it's John. Let's take a look. John 6. It's a longer passage. I broke it up in parts because it's John. He talks a lot. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because the Father. So whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like that which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. So you get done going, all right, Jesus, now are you sure I have to eat the flesh? No, I mean, it almost sounds, I mean, you could see why the Romans thought that Christians were cannibals and vampires and stuff, right? I mean, this is... Uh, you know, and, and it's the Gospel of John, which is interesting because the Gospel of John is the last one written. I mean, this one, this could have been written a hundred years after Jesus' death, right? So what are we talking about here? Uh, this has often been understood as communion, right? As there's an understanding of communion and that right off the bat, people were trying to water it down. It isn't really Jesus' body and blood. He doesn't really mean it. It's a symbol. Yeah, it's a symbol. He doesn't really mean it. It's a, it's a way to remember him by. Or he's spiritually present with us in a spiritual way when we take communion. That's what he really means. We're spiritually eating his spiritual body and spiritually drinking his spiritual flesh. You can see how people would have tried to water that down. I mean, to this day, there's lots of people who are so scandalized by the idea that the bread and wine really are Jesus and that that's what Jesus really meant. And I'm like, why don't you just look in the, new, in the Gospels? Jesus isn't terribly mealy-mouthed about this. Um, in fact, he beats it over the head multiple times. Clearly, it was something that scandalized people. And I think the fact that it's so repetitious that he's saying it over and over and over means that he's really just, that this was this, a contested issue. Uh, and that there were people who were really kind of uh, turned off and queasy about the flesh and blood thing, just as people to this day are still turned off and queasy by it. Um, although 
those same people who will be scandalized by eating Jesus' flesh and blood will turn around and, you know, watch a vampire show or a vampire movie, of which there are, what, 5,000, you know, and be infinitely intrigued, you know, by uh, a young Tom Cruise sitting there in New Orleans saying, you got to eat my blood fresh and drink my blood and you'll live forever, you know. Um, that isn't what Tom Cruise sounded like at all. Um, but anyways, right? So there's a weird contradiction of us sort of enjoying vicariously watching this, but when it actually comes down to it, and Jesus says, look, this is what it is, we're still scandalized by it. But what does this have to do with participation in the community? Well, it looks to me like there were people who were saying, well, could I be a follower of Jesus? Could I be in the church? Could I be a part of this movement, but just not the flesh and blood stuff? Could I skip that? Could, could, I, could I join in spirit or some other way? And so I think the reason you got John saying this is he's, again, doubling down on something and saying, no, we're not watering this down. It is flesh and blood, and that's what it is. So how do people respond, right? How do people respond? Let's start with verse 59. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but among you there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that did not believe and who was the one that would betray him. And he said, For this reason I've told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. So, you know, the disciples said what everyone's thinking. Oh man, this is difficult. Who's going to believe that? But Jesus wasn't worried about that, right? And then he has that great line, does this offend you? Well, clearly it does offend them, or they wouldn't ask the question, does this offend you? Well, if you think this is crazy, wait till you, you know, well, what if you were to see the Son of Man rising again from the dead? Ooh, oh, I don't know, right? Um, but he, he just, Jesus doesn't back down from this. All right, let's, let's finish up this passage, John 6. We'll go to verse 66. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. That was where I was kind of headed with this all along. Verse 66. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. The, again, the, the picture you get in the New Testament as you follow along is that, yes, there was the original, the 12, but I think there were always other disciples with them. It was always a bigger crowd than 12. There was a core of 12, but there were always others. And some were in various levels of commitment. But as soon as Jesus stood his ground on this flesh and blood stuff, poof, people ran. And uh, Jesus didn't say, oh no, well, I guess I better stop talking about that flesh and blood stuff. 
It's costing me members, right? He just says, look, this is, this is what it is. And then he looks at the disciples. That was a gutsy move. Do you want to go away too? I mean, he, they all could have walked away. That could have been the end of it right there and then. That's playing that's play your whole hand, Jesus. You worked this so long, you've gotten this far, and you're just going to look at them and go, all right, you guys want to go too? But I think, you know, people who've started new movements and, and, and made big changes, they, they get to points where you have to say, are, are you guys with me or not? Is this it? Are you, if you want to go, go. And that's kind of when you find out who's with you and who isn't, who really is the core. And for all I know, Jesus could have had 200 disciples and it shrunk back down to the 12. But Jesus doesn't seem terribly interested in trying to morph what he says to make it more palatable for people who are maybe a little bit less committed, which is a hard, which is a kind of a hard concept for us. I think especially when churches, you know, when we're looking at things like the bottom line and we're looking at finances and, you know, standing up front in the pulpit and saying, do any of the rest of you want to go away? That can be bad for business, right? That's why most churches don't aren't prepared to do that. On the flip side, any, anyone who's ever been a pastor will tell you that at some point in time, no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, no matter how caring you try to be, someone will get mad and leave. It's inevitable. You, you can't stop it. And so the question you have to ask yourself in any leadership position is, what are the things I'm willing to lose people over? Um, and some would even say, and I've even read sort of church planters who will say, if you're not prepared, if you're not prepared to basically shut the whole thing down and move, you can't do it. Because as soon as you become afraid, as soon as you become afraid of losing it all, you aren't able to really lead. Um, and that's, those are kind of harsh, convicting words. Um, I, I don't think most of us go into ministry with that kind of level of zeal or, you know, and, and, and I've seen it used very irresponsibly too, right? I've seen people who, you know, I've seen people in pastoral positions be really incompetent jerks and then just fall back on, well, you know, you're just not a true disciple, I guess, um, without any internal examination or saying, you know, maybe I need to change what I did too, right? Um, but there, again, there, I get this sense from Jesus that he knew where he was going, he knew where he was headed, and he knew what this was going to cost, and he knew he was going to need only the most dedicated people in order to pull it off. Uh, unfortunately, as the story would go, those most dedicated people at the very end would all scatter. They'll come back again after the resurrection, but they'll scatter. So even the ones who seemed most uh, committed when, when it really got tough, they ran away. But Jesus kind of has this belief, right, in discipleship that, that, that he isn't really worried about trying to get more disciples if it means that, the, that he has to sort of change who he is. Uh, maybe in psychological terms, you would call this individuation. Uh, that was what they kept telling me when I was going through seminary. You had to be a, you had to be a are, are you an individuated individual? And I was like, Wait, 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 what does that mean? I hadn't studied psychology, but it makes good sense. You know, who, know who you are as a person, have good boundaries of a person and a good sense of self, uh, 
And it doesn't mean that you're mean. It doesn't mean that you're, always a, a, you're, you're not always a doormat. You're not always hostile. Those are false categories. You just are who you are, and you're strong in yourself. And ultimately, that will be more attractive to people anyways um, in the long run. But it does mean in the short run that you will be setting boundaries from time to time, and people will not want to hear those boundaries, and they don't want to be a part of it. And that's how anything goes, right? That's how any relationship goes, any work, any business. You know, sooner or later, you have to set boundaries. You have to know where you set them. And so this becomes, this get, getting back to the business of sort of how we live as a church, this is our million-dollar question, is where do we set these boundaries? Uh, where are we willing to say, you know, if that's what you think, you know, you can go. I, I, I you know, um, I know, you know, from my own experience, I'll tell you, standing up here, I'm in the sanctuary right now, I've stood right over there, you know, I've been mid-sermon and watched people march out. Um, and sometimes it wasn't things I expected. Um, one time I was talking about, uh, I was talking about the resurrection and the end of times and how it gets better. You know, and how part of why we have hope in this world is because we know, we believe, we have faith that the end times, Jesus will make it better. Because we know it gets better, we have strength to endure today. And the analogy I used was this sort of a campaign that was done, and it was done a few years ago, maybe 20 years ago. Uh, and it was our, head, our national head bishop, Mark Hansen, was along with it. And it was primarily for gay, lesbian kids. And it was a campaign called It Gets Better. And the gist of it was your whole life isn't high school. Uh, high school may be hell for you. I know many Americans would agree with that on different points. But the whole world isn't high school. You'll be able to get out of high school and find a friendship group of people who love you and support you as you are, right? It gets better. And so, the, and so I saw this nice little parallel, and I stood up front, and I said, it gets better. And I saw a guy pick up, and he threw his bulletin on the ground and marched right out the back door. I was like, wait, how is that so offensive? I thought, don't bully gay kids was a pretty, I think we can all agree on that as Christians, right? Don't go bullying people. Bullying is anti-Jesus. I thought that was obvious, but clearly... Once I said gay and lesbian, that must have just been the trigger for him. He wasn't a member of the church. He was a first-time visitor. I remember there was another one, too. I was sitting right here, at the, sitting right there, and I was talking about um, First and Second Thessalonians. I thought this was a really kind of nosebleed, heady kind of Bible scholarship thing that nobody had ever really thought too much about. I mean, I grew up my whole life, and no one ever told me that Paul didn't write Second Thessalonians. I never thought about that in my faith journey. I thought this was just kind of a nice little thing to inform people of and to point out the, di the difference. And I think I might have been doing that don't work, don't eat thing or something. Whatever the context was, it was many years ago, but I stood up there, and it was the same kind of thing. There was a guy, he had come into the church for the first time, brought in his own Bible, took his hat off, was holding it here, very respectful. Um, and uh, as soon as I said, yeah, you know, but you have to understand, Paul didn't write Second Thessalonians. When I said Paul didn't write Second Thessalonians, he grabbed his hat and his Bible and marched right out, never saw him again. I was like, that was the scandalous thing? I mean, Jesus is talking about eating flesh and blood. I was just questioning authorship. 
Um, I didn't think that was so scandalous, but you know, if you come from a framework of biblical literalism, you know, as soon as you say Paul didn't write it, even though it says Paul wrote it, you're, you're implying that the person who signed his name, the name Paul on the book was lying, um, which is exactly what I'm implying. And um, that that calls into question your understanding of the authority of the Bible. And so I thought to myself, you know, this is what's considered scandalous. I mean, there's other stories, and some of them run deeper than that. But, you know, saying something like, don't bully kids, even if you, even if you take a very conservative position on LGBTQ things, can't we all agree that bullying people is just evil and wrong? I mean, isn't that such a basic, simple thing that it should not be scandalous? And I thought to myself, if that scandalizes you, if you won't come to church unless the pastor is willing to, to go along with bullying people, I'm like, then fine, go. <laughs> Do you want to go too? Go. You know, because if, you know, if, if that's what you think Jesus is, if, and you're okay with that, then, I, then, then you need to go. I, I won't want to say I don't want you. I want you to repent and come back would be the ideal. But I, I realistically know that's probably not going to happen, right? If your heart is so hardened that you're worrying that an anti-bully campaign is going to be a crack in the moral foundation, you can go, you know? I, I've also stood up front in the church, and it's been obvious I've said things like we should all get vaccinated. Um, I know for some people that's probably a scandalous thing. I guess we all have to decide where we draw those lines and those boundaries. I try not to be overly line drawing, but when it comes to just being mean and ruthless and brutal and cruel to people, I, I will draw that boundary um, and I won't feel bad about it. Um, it's not always good for business, but on the other hand, uh, what about the other kid, who might, someone who might have been sitting in that pew going, yeah, that was me being bullied um, and I'm glad you spoke up against it, right? So individuated, I think, is the term they use. Jesus is very, very individuated. Um, and people are always trying to pull him to be what they want him to be. And he doesn't bend on that. Um, he doesn't run around condemning people, but he doesn't bend on it. Um, you could say maybe he doesn't water it down. Jesus doesn't pronounce a whole ton of doctrine, but the flesh and blood thing, he does kind of stick to that. And he has to understand that there will be people who won't. And he doesn't say, you know, he doesn't say you're going to hell. He does say you need to have, you won't have life in you. So he does kind of raise the bar there. So anyways, I don't know if I have a grand conclusion other than to say that uh, when we are asking ourselves as Christians about questions about things like uh, membership growth, there's a deeper question that needs to be asked about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus really. And and, and what are the characteristics that we think are so crucial and so important uh, that we're willing to draw some boundaries around? And understanding that when you draw a boundary, yes, some people will want to be out, but other people will say, thank God you drew that boundary. Now I feel safe. I can be in and be a part. And, uh, but Jesus himself was never one to say, let's have no boundaries so I can get as many people as possible. He could have had thousands and thousands of followers if he was willing to take anyone who didn't want to take any risk. Um, but that wasn't, his, that wasn't his goal, 
right? That wasn't how he was going to build the kingdom of God. All right, that's all I got to offer on that this morning. Uh, thanks for tuning in again today. Uh, next week, we'll look a bit at uh, Jesus's perspective on violence. Uh, one thing Jesus never said was violence is the answer. So um, tune in next week. They'll be the last one before Lent. Hope you guys all have a good week and um, God bless.